Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast on Cleveland.com. I am Dan Lobby, and joining me via phone is Mary Kay Cabot and Scott Patsko. Guys, how are you? I'm doing great. Just fresh off the uh, fresh home from the Senior Bowl today, so doing great. All right, so we are coming uh, home to lovely, warm Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. All that snow. So anyway, let let's get to this. We we wanted to record a podcast because, uh, of course, today a big piece dropped by uh, Seth Wickersham of ESPN, um, all about kind of inside the Browns and a lot of the dysfunction that has kind of led to, uh, you know, where where they are now, uh, or at least kind of where they were coming into this season before they got Baker Mayfield, before they, before John Dorsey had really kind of sunk his claws into this organization. Um, and, and we're going to get into a few takeaways from that piece that's up, uh, that's up at ESPN. And let's just start here because I think the big overarching topic is of course, Jimmy Haslam and, uh, you know, Mary Kay, I'll start with you. We, we've kind of known, uh, you know, everybody has kind of known that, that Jimmy Haslam has had some issues. He hasn't been real decisive. He hasn't really been able to find that stability that, that he wanted when he first came here from Pittsburgh. Uh, so not a lot of surprises necessarily in that sense, but this certainly put a lot of things uh, out in the light for, for people to see about Jimmy. Yeah, you know what? I, I think that uh, what it did was it really provided a lot of really insider detail. Like, we knew most of these things happened. I mean, we you know, I really chronicled the whole Ray Farmer thing and broke the tech skate story and all of those sorts of things. You know, we knew that Jimmy was the one that wanted Johnny Manziel. So I think, you know, it, it really was a deep dive into a lot of things that, you know, a lot of stories that we already knew, some extra little insight and details just into uh, the background of all of the, all of the dysfunction that we have basically known about since Jimmy purchased the team. Scott, when when you kind of first sat down and read this piece, what, what was your takeaway kind of from the Jimmy Haslam, the, the Haslam element of it all? I think it seemed to reinforce a lot of the things that people thought about Haslam's anyways. Um, there was a sense that, that he got too involved. You know, we, we'd heard all about Johnny Manziel and how that pick came down and uh, his impatience with different regimes and, and how quick he's been to, to change his mind. And I think this kind of laid that out. Um, one thing to keep in mind, this is written for a national publication. I believe that this is going in ESPN, the magazine as well. So it's a national audience. It's not really for the Cleveland audience. So it's, you know, it's informing a lot of people who haven't been here and living through it for the past however many years. So there's that element to it. So as you read it from the Cleveland perspective, you're like, okay, well, we, we kind of knew that. And it, there was a, a point where it just felt like it was kind of rehashing things, but it did give a, a sense of, of what some of those behind the scenes meetings were like. Um, so in that respect, there was some, some good nuggets in there, but I think overall it, it, it just kind of reinforced what we already thought. Yeah. And, and, and just really the, the processes that were kind of laid out the, the way that, uh, Ray Farmer uh, sort of took over for Joe Banner when that all went down. Um, kind, kind of how things went down after that as well. Kind of inside a little bit of the the Sashi Brown stuff, um, which, which is still obviously a, a fresh wound for a lot of people. Um, it, it just seemed like, you know, Jimmy was very flavor of the month, Mary Kay. He never really could land on on one group of people that he really trusted. Yeah, and that has been a recurring theme since Jimmy and Dee agreed to purchase his team in 2012, that 
that they have kind of listened to the last person, maybe listened to too many people, tried too hard to do things in a radically different way. Uh, but for the most part, one of the things that I have felt all along is they've made sort of obvious glaring mistakes. I mean, you can't, you cannot put an all analytics front office together and leave out that very important element of talent evaluation. To me, that's just an obvious glaring omission uh, in your organizational structure. And then he puts, uh, before that, puts Ray Farmer in place as the general manager. Nobody thought that was a good idea, even though uh, apparently the, you know, the Dolphins were thinking about hiring him. You know, sometimes some of that stuff is gamesmanship. Now, maybe they would have hired him as their GM, but it, it seems so far-fetched to me that, that anybody would really be thinking of, of Ray Farmer, who, again, was like 39 year old, years old at the time and had no experience and was not ready for that kind of a role, to all of a sudden be named the general manager of the team. I mean, there, were, there have just been things along the way that are so puzzling. And, and I think that's the, uh, one of the things that stood out to me. Yeah, Scott, it, it, you know, that going back to that Ray Farmer era, um, kind of the way he ended up there, and then really to sort of have his first draft, um, you know, that first round sort of torpedoed, he picks Justin Gilbert for Mike Pettin, uh, and of course we know there were, there were a lot of really good players at the top of that draft, and then ends up uh, picking Johnny Manziel, uh, there's the, the whole the whole handshake thing with Teddy Bridgewater, you know, who knows about that, but um, it, it really, that, that was really a very symbolic kind of era for, for the Haslam ownership, I think. Yeah, I, I found myself, as I was reading this, trying to keep track of the people he said did not talk to him. I'm talking about Wicker Sham here. Trying to figure out how he went about putting the story together. Obviously, there's no way Jimmy Haslam's going to come off looking too good in a story that has a lot of sources that are basically former employees who were probably fired by the Haslams. He's fired a lot of people. Um, and I'm wondering, like, trying to go through and figure, do you, do you think he talked to Penn? Do you think he talked to, I mean, Banner, obviously, he talked to, because I think he quoted him at one point, and trying to get a sense of who the, who the sources are to kind of piece together, because everybody's got their different point of view on how things have gone down there. We've, even after the Hugh Jackson firing, and he goes out on his mini media tour and kind of gives him his side of the story, which is different than what we were hearing from other people. So uh, that was kind of another takeaway for me is trying to figure out how, who he talked to and, 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 and maybe how he came, how that person became a source. Well, you know, I think in these sorts of situations, and I know just from my own experience, everybody starts to assume that you talked to this person or you talked to that person, or it's obvious that you spoke with this person, but it's not always as obvious as people seem to think it is. You know, I just spent some time at the Senior Bowl. People come up and tell me things, uh, and I have conversations with people uh, that tell me things that happened inside the Browns building that they know of those things because one of those people in the building is like one of their best friends, and they told them. So, mm -hmm. you know, you don't always get things directly from maybe the person who was fired, although I suspect that there were plenty of people who have been fired by Jimmy Haslam who spoke to Seth Wickersham for this article. There was a lot of like really good insider nuggets in there that I think probably only some uh, people that were there at the time uh, could have told him. But again, it's not always so cut and dry. People 
uh, close to the people who these things happen to are quite often very willing to talk. Uh, but before we get into the takeaways, um, I, I do have to ask, have either of you ever shorthanded dog pound as DP? No. <laughs> I, I have not. Uh, I don't know that many people have. Um, that, that was one of uh. them. Yeah, we're, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, but that was certainly a standout moment um, from the article. Okay, so, so let's get to it, because we each sort of had a, a takeaway from, uh, from this story. And, and so we'll start uh, with you, Mary Kay. What, what was kind of a big takeaway from you? You know, I would have to say uh, that one of the things that really struck me and stood out was the fact that Sashi Brown and Paul DePodesta were so vehemently opposed to the hiring of Hugh Jackson. And I think that does inform uh, just how much of a disaster those two years were. They were an absolute disaster from minute one. You know, it, it all started to go downhill after we saw Hugh Jackson walk into the building and to that great thunderous applause and that, uh, you know, that little hallway foyer speech and, and all of that. I mean, it, that was the best that it was. And <laughs> it started to go downhill uh, very, very quickly after that. And I think the fact that those guys actually went to Jimmy Haslam and said, do not do this. Uh, you know, that part really stood out to me. And the fact that um, that it was four to one. Now, we had heard before through Jason Lockham for, I believe, that Sean McDermott was the favorite of the analytics guys of, of Paul and Sashi. Um, but, you know, here it was four to one with Jimmy being the lone Hugh Jackson supporter. I mean, how do you do that? How, how do you go out on a limb and do that when your top trusted aides are, are so opposed to it? And that is just setting yourself up for disaster right from the start. Yeah. If, if you're going to buy into this plan, if, if you're going to adopt this plan that, that Sashi Brown and company wanted to, to go after, why would you go against their recommendation for head coach um that that's completely bizarre and and kind of the crazy thing about it is sean mcdermott sean mcdermott of course ended up in buffalo and and they've taken a little bit not quite as extreme as the browns approach but they've taken a little bit of, of that same approach so you can see how that fit probably would have been a better fit i don't know if it would change anything i don't know if if it would have worked but he certainly would have been a better fit than than hugh jackson ended up being especially with the way it came about well, I mean, if you just, you know, if you consider, uh, you know, the way some of the, the draft work got worked out, I mean, let's say, for instance, that, instance that they had hired Sean McDermott. That changes the course of the draft for the next two years, which, of course, then changes everything about the Cleveland Browns right now. Because, obviously, they would, you know, they probably wouldn't have Baker Mayfield. I don't think they would. They probably would not have drafted Miles Garrett number one overall. In, in that year, um, in the second year. So, uh, yeah, I, I really don't think that, um, that, I mean, who knows if they would have even traded down away from Carson Wentz. So there's so many different things that, that would have been different, I think, if they had hired Sean McDermott. Yeah. Scott, I, I mean, just kind of your thoughts on that whole – Four to one, Jimmy goes. The the one in that equation goes out and hires his guy. That, yeah, that was kind of surprising because it seemed like at that point they were on, they kind of on the same page, and he seemed 
you know, he seemed willing to, to move forward with that, with that idea. And everybody's kind of has the same plan. And yeah, I was kind of shocked by that. Um, I don't think we'd really heard that before. So yeah, that was quite shocking. Yeah. And it, it kind of gave us a, a look into why, you know, that dysfunction, you know, we knew about that dysfunction there. It kind of gave us a, a look into why it was there. Um, so Scott, uh, what, what was your sort of takeaway from this that, that maybe we haven't touched on? You know, it was towards the end of the story uh, where they're going over the, the period where Sashi Brown was fired. And there's a quote from D uh, and it cites multiple sources hearing it where she says, we just don't know what we're doing. If we'd known how hard it would be, we never would have bought the team. And I have a hard time believing that somebody who's, who's running the Browns or running any company would say that in front of their employees or, or people who, who work for them. Um, you know, maybe, it's something she said in confidence with Jimmy. Maybe it's something she said in confidence with, I don't know, somebody who's close to the family or close to them. But it, that seems kind of, that's not something you want to say in an office <laughs> around people who are working for you and who are counting on you to make the right decisions, you know? Yeah. You know what? Some of the direct quotes, again, if you are getting some of this information from, and we know that, that Dee and Jimmy did not talk to, Seth for this article. So you're getting someone else that is is quoting her as saying that. So maybe some of it gets a little bit changed in this, you know, maybe there's a word here or there that gets lost in the translation. Maybe it's a little bit different. I do have a little bit of a hard time hearing Dee say exactly those words. Like you said, she's a very right. smart and savvy businesswoman. And, you know, I don't know that she would be speaking like that, uh, you know, to to her employees. I just, I, I, you know, I'm sure there was some version of that, but quite like that, you know, I, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah. It was, it's a little bit of game of telephone when, when you get into this stuff, especially if you don't get, you know, a, a direct comment from the person who said it or, you know, confirm it with them that that, that happened. Um, it, it becomes a little bit of a game of telephone, but um, I, I think the bigger overarching piece of that is, you know, all these meetings that they had to, you know, here's our next head coach, here's our next regime change, here's, you know, you can see how that can wear on them when it, it's just failure after failure. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, again, it, it, it's shocking to me, and I, I wrote about this along the way, you know, several times about how they weren't setting things up properly, and, you know, how you can't you know, just have that void in the front office and, and different things along the way. I mean, they, they made really big mistakes. I mean, they made really big mistakes along the way. And I don't know why they didn't have some really good trusted advisors early on in the process that could help them avoid some of these mistakes. And I, I don't know. It's just mind-boggling that you can get it wrong so many times. And another thing that I've written about extensively and I've talked about is I, I just don't think that you can keep um, holdovers from the previous regimes and try to blend them with the new. I just, you know, you have to be very, very careful when you do that. So even when, you know, Sashi and Paul and those guys took over, it was really still, you know, the holdovers from the previous regime instead of, you know, just kind of starting fresh and saying, you know, new coach, new front office, here we go. 
Um, you know, they just kept trying to, to patch together people that didn't fit together. Okay, so so that's actually a nice a nice little leadway, I think, into to what I'm going to put out there as my takeaway, and and it's sort of how we've gotten to where we are now with Freddie Kitchens as the head coach, John Dorsey as the GM. Um, you know, Mary Kay, you have reported that that Freddie Kitchens will report to John Dorsey. Uh, you know, jo- Dorsey didn't want to just come out and say it at his press conference, but you know, it seems like the structure is is a little better now. And I guess the thing that stood out to me is in the very end of this, John Dorsey seems like a very strong figure. You know, Sashi Brown, Ray Farmer, all of these guys. You know, obviously Joe Banner came here with a strong background, um, but things were just kind of a mess there to begin with. Um, but Dorsey is kind of the the one guy that's come here with some cachet, and he's kind of he was he was kind of brought in to rescue this thing. And it does seem like the fact that he's got a little power that they had so much success initially. It, it seems like he's got some cachet to wield right now, and maybe kind of keep ownership in check at least at the moment I think I think that's my sort of takeaway from all of this maybe I'm just being optimistic here but but I think that's sort of my takeaway well I think you're right and I think uh you know it's another one of those situations where uh where Jimmy has decided that he has found the right man to lead this organization to the next level and uh he you know put a lot of there's a power shift going on right now with Freddie Kitchens reporting directly to John Dorsey, as you mentioned, you know, that represents a shift in the power structure of the organization. That means that John Dorsey probably won the, uh, the coaching search and he also won the right to have jurisdiction over Freddie Kitchens. And that, that is a paradigm shift in this organization. It hasn't been that way before. And there has been a lot of uh, internal strife. Uh, with the way things have been set up. So I do think that this is a step in the right direction. And I also think that the press conference was uh, a sign that Jimmy's trying to, you know, stay in the background a little bit and let John Dorsey do his thing. So I think that was important. Although I also think that I would have had Jimmy up there with those guys at the table because it sort of had a feel to it. Like, wait, Jimmy, are you like really excited about this? Are you happy about this? I think he should have been up there uh, talking about Freddie, supporting Freddie, and chiming in and, and saying you know, that this was all unanimous and we're all happy and we're all going in the same direction. Yeah, Scott, that was something you brought up the day of the press conference. Um, the uh, the mm-hmm. idea that, that Jimmy was not up there, that he was not a front-facing piece of this. And, you know, he really was, even kind of when the, when the press conference was going on, when they went up to take pictures after, th- there wasn't a whole lot of Jimmy. He, he was just very low-key through everything. Yeah, I think, and I thought a little bit more about that afterwards. And, you know, he had the quote, I think him and D had a combined or shared quote, maybe or statement when the uh, email first went out that they, you know, were maybe a hiring official, but I, I think maybe he wanted to avoid having to talk about all the mistakes he's made in the past, because you know, that that would have been a line of questioning at some point. Um, and, and perhaps he just wanted to have the focus be on, the, the potential good decision that they just made and, and let, let Dorsey and Kitchens kind of talk about the future. I think if, if Haslam had been up there, there would have been a lot of rehashing the things that, that we write about in the story. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, look, this story is going to ultimately in the, in the annals of Brown's history be looked at one of two ways. It's either going to be a, a precursor to why maybe this 
doesn't work or it's going to be just sort of a, a piece of history if, if Baker Mayfield and John Dorsey and, and Freddie Kitchens can, can really turn this team um, into a contender. And, you know, I, I think – I think the fact that they have Baker Mayfield, that they have John Dorsey, that they have things kind of pointed in the right direction. I got the sense from Browns fans that, that this piece didn't really sting as much as it might have if, you know, this team had gone three and 13 and um, it, maybe they weren't feeling as good about their quarterback. Yeah. I feel like a, a, go ahead, Scott. I was going to say it's because you have a GM who's done it before and you have a quarterback who everybody thinks is a franchise quarterback. That that takes all the sting out of it. Yeah, and, and I think Dorsey has so much cred right now. He's got so much credibility because of the Baker Mayfield pick and because of Nick Chubb and Denzel Ward and the way he turned the team around basically in short order that, you know, he, he can almost do no wrong right now. And I think that, you know, that's why they're willing to give him this power. And, uh, you know, and, and trust that he can get the job done and take this team uh, where they want to go, which is obviously uh, to the Super Bowl, ultimately. And I think they feel like they can do that. So, uh, you know, right now, it, it really looks like, uh, you know, that Jimmy and Dee have, have struck gold with the combo they have going. All right. So uh, that'll do it for this edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Uh, of course, we're sponsored by Sibling Revelry Brewing. Uh, our thanks to them. Uh, thanks to Mary Kay and Scott for jumping on here. Uh, Mary Kay, of course, back from, from Mobile uh, just today. So uh, appreciate uh, both of you guys taking the time to get this thing recorded here uh, today so everybody could have it in their podcast feeds on Friday and over the weekend. Of course, any place you subscribe to podcasts, that's where you can find the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Thanks to all of you for listening. For Scott Patsko, Mary Kay Cabot, I'm Dan Lobby. Thanks for listening, everybody.